Hi everybody, welcome back to the cabin. My name is Sean James and I'm the host of the Myself Reliance podcast. This is episode number three. First two episodes were solo episodes where I shared a bit of my life story and what the intent of this podcast is. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those two. Um, Going forward, I will have solo episodes as well. In fact, I'm in the process of editing a um, background story of my financial past and, and present. So I think that's going to be interesting. So you may want to tune in uh, later to hear that episode. Now, the intent with the podcast is to, of course, document my path to self-reliance and also share enough insights that hopefully it helps you on your path to self-reliance and independence. Now, being self-reliant and independent often means using alternative methods to for things like financial systems, health systems, um, health care, um, just alternative living uh, arrangements. And I think the next guest really exemplifies that. So John Schneider is the guest. He, he and I met uh, through his podcast, Food Afield Podcast, a couple of years ago, and I've been on a couple of his episodes over the last, uh, well, this year, 2023. Now, since then, since I was on his podcast earlier this year, he's gone through a major change major upset in his life and he's starting over and what i find so interesting about it is that at his age which is roughly the same age as me i'm 53 i think he might be around 50 uh, regardless whether you're young or old starting over or starting out and trying to do that on a very limited budget is extremely challenging and john's found a way to pursue his dreams but do it on such a low budget that i think it's within reach of almost everyone so i'm quite fascinated by the story and i i really was eager to talk to him about it and i learned a lot and i look forward to following him in the future and and talking again as he uh, uh, makes some progress on that path So John has, um, John's around my age and he, he lives in the western part of Canada and I'm in the eastern part of Canada and we've been co- kind of going down similar paths through, I'd say, most of our lives, but John's going through a real transition in his life right now. Um, but I'd like to hear from him where he's been and where he's headed and what the struggles are personally and uh, financially and from a business perspective, but uh, more so from a personal perspective and how that relates to the struggles I think everybody's going through um, generally in life, but especially in these hard times that I think we're in right now. Yeah, no kidding. So, John, if you want to introduce yourself to the audience, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, first of all, if you want to talk about all that, Sean, we're going to have to have a multi-series <laughs> podcast here because, uh, <laughs> man, I've gone through a lot of stages in my life. But, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it, bud. Um, you and I have been chatting back and forth here now for a couple of years now. Um, I've always been a fan of your show, My Self-Reliance, and so it was kind of an honor to have you appear on the show, The Food of field podcast twice now um but yeah that is all changing everything has changed i um am going through a divorce um it is an amicable separation um i guess a little backstory on that though is that i've been involved like you in the rat race i've worn you know multi-thousand dollar suits and driven audis and worked in downtown office towers and um I I pissed that all away trying to build a farm business. I grew up farming here in Alberta. Um, and my dad asked me if I wanted the farm, if I wanted to take it over. And I said, no, of course not. Um, and I went into the city and, you know, tried to find, trade my, my, my cow for magic beans. And, and then I started missing the, the farming thing in my thirties. And I was like, man, that would be, that would be fun to get back to that. Um, but of course (laughs) at that time in the early two thousands, trying to get into farming, that's like suicide. I mean, you, there's no way that you can farm especially grain farm so we tried everything we had some property west of the city my um i I don't know what to call her my wife at the time and i had uh about 40 acres west of the city it was a nice house that we'd Mm. built ourselves um and we it i was still working full time the kids were young and i decided let's try to find a business a farm business that i like to do that can replace my income which at the time was significant and so we experimented with everything 
This is early 20s, or early 2000s, you said. Early 2000s, yeah, in my early 30s. And your father had a, a larger farm, I'm assuming, nearby? Yeah, yeah, we grew up, I grew up in Sturgeon County, which is just north of Edmonton, and he and his cousin, I called him Uncle Larry, um, they had mm, about 2,000 acres of, of grain farm, um, mm -hmm. which at the time okay. was significant for here in Alberta. I know that in Saskatchewan, there's mm -hmm. the farms are many times bigger than that, but around here, we have such good soil um, that, uh, you know, 2,000 acres mm -hmm. at the time was a big farm and uh okay. so yeah so so that's what he was so they were offering you a share in that or yeah. half an ownership so you turned that down and then years later decided maybe farming wasn't such a bad idea you had this 40 acres that you were going to try to make work with your family well, the plan there sean was just Sound to right? see what yeah you're right the plan there though was just to see what would pencil out because, I mean, farming, that's a broad term, right? We, so we tried cattle, we tried mm -hmm. sheep, we tried pigs, we tried Christmas trees, we tried potatoes, we tried pastured chickens, we tried um, all of these things, uh, which, you know, logic dictated that, well, we do this anyways, because, I mean, that's, gonna, that's good. It's fun to accomplish something on your own, and we learned all of those skills in animal husbandry. Growing up on the farm where I grew up on, we didn't have animals. It was just a grain farm. Um, okay. So I'd never really been around cattle. I, I did some rodeoing when we when I was really young, um, you know, just horse stuff with friends and and working on my aunt's thoroughbred farm. But other than that, we I had no real experience with animals. Um, my grandfather raised pigs, but again, I was so young when he did that, I had no recollection of how to do it. So all of that was a steep learning curve, and there's skills that I use to this day. Um, and then we just did the numbers. Uh, you know, we just treated it like uh, a modeling sort of idea where, okay, how much work was that to raise 300 chickens in a field with these movable, mm -hmm. movable pens? And then what doesn't, how much gas is it to get up to the processing plant? And how much work is it to wrangle, you know, uh, hundreds of chickens into a horse trailer? And all of this sort of stuff, you know, has to be factored to into the decision. So yeah, this is so this is extremely relevant I think for my audience. I did the same thing when I lost my business about uh, what 13 years ago, got and then did the same thing because I came from a at that point a business background. I ran the numbers on each of these things, but I also tried them. A lot of people think that that's I'm going to get into homesteading and make a living from it. I can quit my job and so on, and it, you know. It, so, what what are the steps to do that? But hearing this from you, so I'm going to ask you some more questions on that, um, that because I, in my opinion, it's almost impossible. Like it's great to raise some food for yourself, but on a small scale, it's very hard to make a living at it. So there's got to be some other. So at the time, had you quit your job, or like did you jump right into this? And oh gosh, no, 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 because no. I mean, I had young kids, so I had a family relying on me. We had a big <laughs> house that needed to be paid for and needed to be heated, and you know, so I mean, I was careful about that. We had installed a wood stove in the basement, and I thought, you know, the more self sustainable I can be and the more money I save on food and heat, then the more opportunity <laughs> I will have to downscale my off farm work which sounds ridiculous mm -hmm. because we weren't even a farm. We were just pretending to be a farm. But the whole exercise of being self-sustainable was so valuable because you just realize mm -hmm. how much work it is. And then the other sort of realization was you can't do it all. So, you know, if you're dealing with all of your proteins and you want it to be domesticated proteins, so chicken, pork, lamb, beef, well, there's four diff totally different sets of infrastructure mm. that you need to produce that protein. So you're mm -hmm. far better off to focus on one mm. and then find somebody else that has the pork and find somebody else that has the chicken and just do trades, right? That's so building that community I quickly discovered was key yeah. as far as self-sustainability goes. Yeah. But well, let me back up a little bit then because this <clears throat> to me that's extremely relevant that because I always say this, like my mantra sort of at the beginning of my self-reliance was that if you have income or you have some some um, liquid assets, 
invest in infrastructure in order to set yourself up so that you can reduce your future living expenses. But the setting up of that infrastructure, if you do the math on it, it typically doesn't work. Like if you just putting up fences for a small cattle farm, like a really small homestead, it might not pay for itself in its lifetime. So when you start trying to do that, and I've done it too, with multiple species and multiple crops, then literally you're doing it for the next generation and you're unlikely to see a payback in your time. So I want to ask a couple of questions about the, the acreage that you had because that's variable too. Here in Ontario, prices for real estate are so expensive. Like you say, 2,000 acres, that's almost unheard of as a parcel here in Ontario. Like the average, well, the, the divided parcels instead of being a uh, mile by a mile are, one, are 100 acre parcels. So if you have 100 acres, you're you're kind of wealthy mm. or you're, you're uh, fortunate. Um, but it's often, in my case, uh, because of the cost of land, and anybody new getting into this, the cost of land is so prohibitive that you have to buy the least capable land and try to make that work so so if you could tell me on your 48 like what's how is the 40 acres made up of uh, landscape wise or ecosystem wise at all yeah. is that all field or no um again interesting because when we bought that property we were on another acreage um closer to the city that cindy had owned prior to me meeting her um and i was really into bow hunting at the time i had i in fact i was still outfitting and so what i wanted was mm. a piece of land that was all uh bush um and uh and and no grass to cut right i wanted as little grass to cut <laughs> and as much property as i could to hunt on and so for the mm -hmm. first you know five six seven years that's what i did that was where i bow hunted and was quite successful at it it was right in the middle of the best whitetail hunting in the universe um just west of the city of edmonton so um so that's how it started so it was all big timber big well not all because there were some marshy areas as well when i see videos that you're putting out sean it reminds me a lot of that it was spruce oh, big really? spruce big poplar uh big pines and <laughs> uh, rolling um sort of hills um and then some okay. low some low scrub like willow land so mm -hmm. yeah so in order to do some of these part there was one little tiny section of a field on the very part very very back corner of our property um and that's kind of where we did some of the field um you know produce i guess you'll call it but you know we did fence all of that mm. um and again okay. i used i used external you know money to accomplish that like the money i was making off farm paid for all that fencing because you're right especially now like fencing is expensive mm -hmm. it was expensive back then yeah and so, then yeah. run-in sheds i guess and equipment and well so on so, so here's another thing though sean is we i didn't want to do all that so i needed to just sort of explore so my whole my whole attitude about all of this was okay how did my grandfather do this you know a hundred years ago when he was 13 years old he started homesteading um and wow. if you can imagine that um that just seems bizarre to me today but you know he he was mm -hmm. i don't know if he was kicked out of his house or if he voluntarily said yeah i'm out of here but yeah 13 years old he was off on his own clearing wow. brush and fields wow. and uh and so anyways so I thought to myself, well, how? what's the minimum amount of infrastructure I can get away with? And in order to do that, what breeds do I need? So we went with Highland cattle breeds, uh, um, mm -hmm. Highland, um, Galloway. Those are northern breeds from Scotland. They're shaggy. They look like yaks, right? And all the research mm -hmm. that we did said that they tasted the best on grass and they didn't require shelter um and we had bush right so we had the windbreak you right. know it wasn't extreme in any sense and they did fine like they thrived mm -hmm. um so that was part of it too is like you know you, i don't know if that was smart or not but whatever it worked and and we had we had many years of cattle and beef uh supplied to us through that um the numbers didn't pencil out because by the time you 
you know, bring in hay or, or get the equipment to, which we did, to make your own hay and then rent the hay land that you needed to secure that hay. Like either way, all of that costs money. Um, and then the breakdowns, because you can only afford to buy older equipment, um, you know, it just didn't work, right? The numbers didn't work. You know, by the time you went through the hassle of loading up a steer or two into a horse trailer and trailering it to some facility that, you know, here in Alberta, I'm sure it's the same in, in Ontario, it has to be provincially ins- inspected. So you can't just slaughter mm-hmm. a beef in your backyard and, and legally sell it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, by the time I did all of those numbers, it was just like, well, this is useless. Like, I can't do this. The chickens didn't pencil (laughs) out. The beef didn't pencil out. The Christmas trees made the most sense. But again, that was like a eight to 10 year return on investment, uh, you know. Um, So that wasn't going to work out. Yeah. Nothing we tried really worked out. And then it occurred to me what was happening. I had to find a product that I could capture all of the profit centers from, from start to finish. If I could, like, you know, commercial farming or commodity farming, whether it's beef or pork or, or grain especially, has the farmer produces the grain, but then there's this incredibly long chain of profit centers from truckers to uh, brokers who sell the commodity grain to uh, processing facilities that mill the grain, you know, Nabisco or whoever it might be. Um, And then more truckers that get it to, um, you know, uh, to the grocery stores. And then the grocery stores take their cut. Like by the time everybody takes their cut, the consumer is paying, you know, whatever, $10 for a box of shreddies and the farmer's getting 10 cents. And I don't know if those numbers are accurate, but that's probably about what I'd be surprised if it was 10 cents, but yeah. So, and, and that's where the scale matters, right? So that's doing that on a small scale with infrastructure costs and equipment costs and everything that you can't scale over a larger quantity, mm-hmm. larger volume, it just makes it uncompetitive for the smaller farmer. So the one thing that we did then was decide to do grains. Um, It's something I'm familiar with. It's what I grew up doing. And Mm -hmm. there are fewer sort of uh, regular, it's a safe food, right? I mean, you can't, it's hard to contaminate Mm. grain. I don't need to refrigerate it. I don't need to, you know, there's obviously food safety regulations involved with what we do, but it was less stringent. I could achieve a commercial kitchen or a commercial setting, um, package up flour and sell it directly at a farmer's market or sell it directly to you. So that's what we did. And it worked. And you know. how much, so this is still in that back corner in that of the 48, like how many acres of grain then were you growing? That's where it started. But then, you know, what I started doing was with old, and, and I'm talking old, like from the 40s kind of antique um, farm equipment, um, I started renting little scraps of land around us, like mm. little tiny, like three acre parcels of hayland. You know, I would go and talk to the person, go, well, I'd like to grow grain here. And they mm. would look at me like I was insane, but um, it worked because three acres of grain at 40 bushels an acre, there's 120 uh, bushels of of wheat what you know what uh, wheat is sixty dollars a bushel so what what are we at for for pounds i don't even know uh is that six thousand pounds so that's what three times <laughs> right yeah. so you know all of a sudden you're talking about okay well there's I don't know if I did that math right. Listeners will correct me. No, I, yeah, I, lo- I missed the first number, so I wasn't. I couldn't help you with the math. Well, whatever. There's, you know, a small amount of property can get you a significant weight of grain, uh, ergo flour, that you can then sell. And if you're doing all the milling and trucking and delivering straight to a consumer, then you know, whatever, all of that money is yours. And that was the only thing that made sense, barely but it made sense. And so that's what we focused the farm business on. And then that's what I focused on doing for the next, well, we've been doing that since 2007. Then we started, then marketing wise, we went, well, okay, it needs to have a story because I mean, as you're well aware, 
with your business. And what I'm trying to do with John Schneider's Wildlife, I'm trying to create a story. And in that story, I'm hoping people find value and then subscribe to the YouTube channel or listen to the podcast or whatever it is that we're that we're marketing. Um, and so the same thing was with the grain products. I, so we decided to focus on certified organic, number one, um, and then mm. ancient and heirloom grains, number two, which again, mm. have a significant story to them. Um, we mm-hmm. found out later by accident that they're more healthful than the modern genetically altered varieties. Right. Um, like people with celiac, well, not with celiac necessarily, but anyways, people, I don't know, this is anecdotal. So, uh, but people with celiac would come up to us at the farmer's market. They said they had celiac um, and say things like, oh, wow, I can eat your wheat. This is so amazing. Um, so, yeah, I don't yeah. know. That Same was with the glut- gluten. Yeah. Yeah. The gluten so, intolerance is often just with the modern uh, breeds of, of wheat, not the, not the ancients. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the other thing is maybe some people are allergic to what most people don't realize about grain production nowadays, Is at least here in Alberta, is that grain is desiccated immediately prior to harvest so that they can com- they can combine the grain or mm-hmm. harvest the grain while it's standing. We don't have a long enough mm-hmm. growing season here. So they have to go in and spray it with glyphosate, um, you know, days before it's harvested. And that kills the grain, mm-hmm. allows it to dry while it stands, and then they combine it. Well, I'm sorry, but there's going to be residue from that spray mm-hmm. that is dried mm-hmm. on the plant. Some of it has been absorbed and some of it hasn't. Um, and that is now mixed in with all the grain. So, I mean, they've done tests on that at grocery stores. Well, they're, fi- they, they're finding glyphosate in, in bread products, right? So wheat isn't washed. From the time it goes to the field to the time it ends up in your bread, there's no way to wash wheat because if you make it wet, um, then it's not uh, it's not viable as a as a flour product, right? It has to be uh, you know well below ten percent moisture before it's uh, you know well it has to be well below fifteen percent moisture, so somewhere between ten and fifteen percent. So again, a lot of people just don't realize that it's uh, it's a you know. Well, you know what, for the audience, I would go back and listen to that section again. If you don't know, first of all, about the the problems with glyphosate in, in the environment as well as in the pro- products that we're eating, um, how much you're ingesting over the course of you know your day or your lifetime from multiple products that you're getting bioaccumulation. So this is an extremely important subject, so I would do a little bit of research on that and, and look at the links between mental and physical health. And then mm-hmm. seek out people like John. So this is a, a bit of a sad story in that I'm not sure it, we'll, we're, we'll get into this a little bit more, of course, to finish that part of the story. But um, to support small growers and small farms and homesteaders that are producing products that are getting you out of that system that is broken. And I don't, I don't, um, you know, I'm not too negative on the industry and in, in in its totality globally because it's feeding a massive population and of course we have to make do some efficiency shortcuts in order to achieve that but if you're listening to this podcast and you watch my channel and hopefully john's then um, you're gonna you pay probably more attention to your physical and mental health and Mm -hmm. and the environment and want to do your part so like i said seek out uh, people like john well, and the farm mm-hmm. will continue. So again, that's another struggle okay. that I'm facing is that um, my son has come back to me. So my wife and I get along. It's We don't hate each other. Um, but the marriage has been strained for years. Um, it's been broken. Uh, it's been a series of just stresses, like trying to grow this farm business which, mm-hmm. you know, she supported at the time. Well, I, I don't even know that she had a choice, right? I'm just so headstrong about stuff like this. I cannot, mm-hmm. I could not physically go into the office anymore. And, right. um, you know, it, it just was too hard mentally to do. So I just wanted to do, and I've always been that way. I just got to do what I want to do. Um, and so maybe I'm not marriage material because of that. But um, the... 
the farm was the same way. Like I, I need to do this. I need to make it work. I got headstrong and um, and determined uh, to make it work, and then I did. Um, and that's how we've been making our living here for the last 10 years, 13 years now we've lived in, hmm. in this house. So we wow. moved from the old acreage because the farm was working. Okay. The math was working. Um, I was able to downsize the time spent at my job. We decided to sell that acreage and we sold it on a high um, and we bought more land. Uh, a little further out of town. And then we had researched for about five years, like what other ways could we live sustainably? So we built this straw bale house. So you can see the wall behind me is a straw bale wall. Um, it's about 1300 square feet. It, and you can share some footage of that for, for the audience of, of the building. Can you? Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. We'd like to see that. Uh, I don't know that I have footage of the building, but I've got some photos of it. So I don't know if that's good enough for you. Sure, you can, yeah. You can yeah. get some photos in. But I can certainly, I'll get some video footage of the walls and how we heat it. I mean, mm -hmm. we decided it's so efficient. It's uh, R80 in the attic, and then the walls are R60. Wow. Um, so overall, wow. I forget, but we achieved some grants with due to its efficiency. So I have the smallest wood stove you can buy from Vermont Castings, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. heats our entire house for the entire winter. We also have in-floor heating mm -hmm. that we thought we would use, you know, if we went away on holidays or whatnot. But for the most part, mm -hmm. that gets used maybe like 5% of the time. Um, so, yeah. So, we just became as self-sufficient as we possibly could. And that's the other message too, right? Like, is like, there's, I don't know how much sense this makes, but there's a really easy way to make your grocery bill lower. And that's to eat less, right? And so, you can apply that, that whole sort of mantra to everything that you do is consume less consume less plastic consume less clothing right. consume less food consume less like whatever i know you gotta eat right but i think nowadays with society we're so used to just eating on demand like eating i i'm i'm hungry well are you really or do you just want to eat for entertainment because you're watching tv or you're doing something i know that's me yeah, yeah. like so yeah i think yeah, the majority of people like it, it until you start working, and you're probably like myself, and a lot of men that work like I do. I know skip lunch, for example, and it's not even a thought. And then the question yeah. from other people are used to their, you know, their certain, you know, their noon meal, and then the six o'clock very regimented. They don't understand that time. you don't doesn't. You probably are eating out of boredom in some cases. But the other thing is eating whole foods closer to the source, and not just food, but the energy. So now you've built this energy efficient home and you have a small wood stove which means you don't you have to spend less time and consuming res less resources to cut firewood to feed that wood stove that heats yeah. that home yeah so yeah. again when you are participating at every level participating in your life at uh, from every as many perspectives as possible then you end up paying a lot more attention and you realize hey i don't need to eat that thing maybe well right or i don't need to buy that food that's in handled by three or four or five people or in or companies corporations well, yeah and how about this how about you know i don't need the house to be 23 degrees because i can put on a sweater because yeah. it's hard to go get that wood <laughs> right and split that wood and mm -hmm. bring it home and all of that sort of stuff right so you just become more aware of everything that you're consuming your sure. water if you're if you're if you have a well or if you're hauling water if you're capturing rainwater well you're gonna turn the shower off <clears throat> you're gonna soap up in the shower mm -hmm. you know you're gonna get wet turn the water off soap up right. and turn right. the water back on to rinse yourself <laughs> off right like but That's who right. does that if you're living in the city and mm -hmm. you're just turning the water on like Anyways, it sounds like I'm being altruistic and, and preachy. I'm not. But when you are dealing, as you know, when you're dealing with all of this infrastructure that you have to create yourself, well, then, yeah, like you said, you're just being acutely aware of what you're consuming and you try to consume less. So, I don't know. Easier said than done, I guess, well, this, right? Yeah. But, see, I don't see it as preachy only because... What I found is that the level of mental and physical illness, I believe, is linked to our dependency on 
society taking care of us and our dependency on corporations to feed us and so on and that there's a lot of meaning to be found in these the uh, self-reliance in the the uh, um, in the handling of every aspect of your life down to that very basic level so there it's it's a survival thing like you're, if you're just looking at your food your water your air fresh air and, and your shelter for example um I find a lot of meaning in that, and I think that's missing from a lot of people's lives because most of that's taken care of for them. Mm-hmm. You have, like, how many people know where their food comes from, never mind participate in it, and whether it's grow it, hunt it, fish it, forage it, um, and so on. Or their so water, I, I think it's, or their electricity, yeah. or their heat, yes. or any yeah. of this, right? I, I often think about that. How would I talk to somebody who lived in a condo in downtown Toronto? You know, I'm talking to them about being more self-sufficient. Like, how would that even look, right? But especially when you consider, well, why would I save water because the neighbor next door is going to use twice as much or whatever? Like, there's got to be that sort of mindset, too, where what's the point? I'm not accomplishing anything. But I don't know. I think you're accomplishing some mental health and some mental well-being just by being more, uh, what's the word, conservationist with all of the things that you that you uptake well see the thing is i'm not so much um, setting a great example as a conservationist because i'm not building the most efficient homes or or consuming things the most efficiently or 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 sharing the workload efficiently but to me i just have a high level of energy that i'd like to apply to those things rather than going to that nine to five job that i used to go to i'm not commuting i'm just doing what i have to do to survive and i find great meaning in that so i don't go seeking pleasure outside of what i'm doing so uh, it's yeah it's it's hard to convey that there's that too right you're just so (laughs) yeah yeah we're busy to let you continue with your story so you're and, and as far as you want to go with it so i think so you've handed so your family is comprised of who like who's and if you want to name the farm like uh, people should check it out yeah 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 it's just north of edmonton so it's called gold forest grains it's uh it's like i said it's a farm business that i started back in 2007 um my my ex-wife am i calling her it's not official yet but you know we've we're definitely split up um uh, is going to stay in control of it and my son is also going to hang around he's finished university and is now expressing an interest in i suppose helping out his mom but it's given him purpose it's something that is kind of interesting because it, most people would perceive this as, as being a bad situation but man i just don't see it as that at all um it's going to cause some inconvenience. It's going to cause some hardship for, you know, people involved. But at the same time, it's going to create some joy. Um, I now get to pursue my lifelong, not lifelong, but decades long dream of living in BC. Living in BC is a lifelong dream. It's one of those things where we would go on holidays in BC and we'd come home or, you know, and I'd be crying in the backseat of the truck or in tears, at least anyways, just, I remember the heartache of leaving that province. I just love it so much. I don't know why I have no idea, but it just has always felt like home. So number one, I want to move to BC, the, the decades. So just for the audience. So BC is British Columbia for those that don't know if you're not from Canada on the West coast. And I, I used to. Are you speaking more specifically about the the coast itself, or the interior of BC, or the Rocky Mountains, or what is it? Uh, what what's drawing just, you there? Just all of it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just all of it. And um, it's just a vibe I get from that entire place. The minute I get past Jasper, and Jasper is in the Rocky Mountains, Jasper National Park, people would probably be familiar with. So you know, as soon as I get into that area, mm-hmm. I feel at home. Um, the coast is something that has always called me. I love fishing. I love the ocean. One of the biggest highlights of my trip to Vancouver Island is being on the ferry. I've been fascinated with mm. boats. I spent, uh, you know, years in the Arctic guiding fishing trips on the eastern arm of Great Slave Lake. So I love boats in that respect. Mm. Um, and for about the last 10 years or so, I've just been dreaming about living on a sailboat. I love that idea. Um, so that's what I'm doing, dude. I'm just, uh, <laughs> we've made the decision to split up the marriage and I'm leaving the farm, hopefully in good hands. 
mm, I'm trying to be a, this is the challenge though, is the finances, right? So I've, I've mm-hmm. my entire adult life, I've been building and working to build this asset that's in this form, this property value and the asset of the, of the business. So I'm really, I'm experiencing a lot of turmoil with that because how do I exit that situation? I don't want to just abandon my life's work, even though it is, I suppose, going to my son. Um, that's a big, that's a lot of money. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. so what I'm trying to do is come up with a strategy whereby I can monetize or create an, a living from this new venture, which is, you know, basically the Truman Show selling, selling my story or telling my story. And like I said, at the beginning, hopefully that creates enough value for that people want to follow it and watch it. Um, uh, and then leave the finances alone, at least as much as I can anyways. Um, or don't make- struggle. At, at, well, as a parents, of course, what we, we want to provide the opportunity for our offspring and set them up to, you know, to pursue their, their goals though, or to pursue a meaningful life through hard work and accomplishment without handing it to them. So that yeah. sounds like you're, you're in that transition where he he needs to step up and your wife um of course is going to support or work with your son but it's it's this opportunity that you have either when you're young or when you're at this stage and your former life is broken up and you're moving on that you have these opportunities um to to pursue an alternative lifestyle and you know i've i've always believed that you could pursue that at any point like i know when we lost our business in 2000 end of 2010 our we had our daughters were nine and ten i guess um Mm. 10 and 11 and we thought it was a real imposition to them to leave the house that we were in so we did everything we could just to keep that um but at the same time, we were looking at rentals in totally different areas. Maybe we have to move. And then looking back, they're like, oh, we would have been fine with moving. Like, we even looked at moving to the west coast of British Columbia. And they're so resilient. And people, parents that, um, we have to be responsible parents. And as fathers and providers, we need to look out for our family. But there's <laughs> doesn't mean you have to give up your dreams. It doesn't mean you can't pursue something that they would be more than willing to follow you along in and discover that uh, you know they love it too maybe um, Absolutely. and at the very least there's some life lessons in there so yeah anyway you're pursuing this life um, new life at this age which is very interesting because from a either a young person's perspective or somebody going through middle midlife crisis or whatever you want to call this at 40 50 years old <laughs> uh, how do you do that so your your next steps here are very interesting you've made them very quickly like we talked about this just a few weeks ago and now you're you're like neck deep in it so it can tell yeah. us more about that well so a little bit of a backstory with me is that i've always involved been involved with hunting and fishing since i was a little kid you know i've written a lot of articles about that stories origin stories of why i hunt and fish and the driving factor has always been food so Mm -hmm. again you know if you if you you know i don't know i have a blog so if you go to foodafieldpodcast.com you can read the blog and there's some backstories there that talk about why i hunt and fish um and and so then i did it i did that in my 20s as for a living where i was doing outfitting and guiding like i said the eastern arm of great slave lake bow hunting here in alberta um for whitetails i've always traditional bow hunted since i was like seven or eight years old um um and so I've been involved in uh, the the web series from the wild for the last 10 years. Uh, like I said, I've written some articles. I'm involved. So my podcast was the Food Afield podcast. So Food Afield podcast. And I'm, I hit, I think I hit 99 episodes with that show and oh, then yeah. have ended it more or less. Um, the uh, and then I spun off another one called uh, Traditional Bow Hunter's Journey, and that is in partnership with the Traditional Bow Hunter magazine. Um, and over the years, the editors of that magazine and I have been friends, Don Thomas, and now David Teslaff. Um, and so I've had this connection with the outdoor industry 
to the point where you know I can still monetize some of my writing. So there there'll be that that goes into it, and then now. I'm just transitioning to this new brand, which is John Schneider's Wildlife, which will be a YouTube channel. I'll change the name of the of the podcast. I'll change the name of the website and all that stuff eventually. Um, and the sailboat will factor in. So the entire new life that I'm living is going to revolve around wild food ingredients and how to collect them and how to cook them. I want to get into that because like I said, it's been a passion of mine since I can remember is cooking wild food. Um, and then the sailboat will get so thrown the, in. So, the, so yeah, so the sailboat, this is, this is interesting. So basically you're a prairie boy living at the edge of the boreal forest. You spent your time inland. Um, I've never sailed a day in my life. Part, like, yeah. well, one day I've sailed now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're <laughs> laughing at me. So, so this is, no, this is so interesting. Like, I'm passionate about um, being on the water as well. We we had a 35 foot boat for a while. And we spent three oh. summers on that in Georgian Bay, which is one of, a part of the Great Lakes here. Nice. Um, and I've ha- I've had boats since I well canoes and then uh, power boats since I was 12 years old and spent yeah. a lot of time on the water. I've always had a boat, uh, so that's always appealed to me as well. But uh, to be on a sailboat on the West Coast is, yeah, that's a bit of a, you know, dream come true for a lot of people. Um, well, but how did that come about? To, like, where did, how did you end up in a sailboat? Um, I don't yeah, know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I definitely need to get you out there. Um, I don't know how that came about. Um, boats have been a thing with me. Um, you know where it started? I bought a book called Devlin Boat Building. And it was a book about stitch and glue plywood boats, right? I wanted to build a drift Mm. boat for fly fishing. And in that book were plans for building all sorts of boats, including sailboats. And I think Mm. that's where the seed was started is like, you know, they were showing pictures of these small live aboard sailboats. And I went, how sweet would that be to have (laughs) an RV that floats and that can float anywhere on the planet? And so Mm -hmm. that sort of thing just clamped onto my brain like a Klingon. And um, I don't know, it's just been growing ever since. Now, I'm not going to build a boat, um, but the idea was that, well, how do I afford a boat? They're tens of thousands of dollars. Um, No, they're not. hundreds of thousands. Yeah, no, they're not. So as I quickly realized, there are deals on sailboats all over the place, especially the older boats. Yeah. So I thought maybe I have to spend 15,000. There's plenty of 23 to 27 foot live aboard sailboats in various states of condition for 15, under 20,000. Let's say that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And some of them are damn nice. Just to put that, well, to put that in perspective for the audience that again, if you're considering a, a simpler or so many ways of defining what this alternative lifestyle is but smaller living like the the mcmansions of the past are, are going to be disappearing they're already out of reach financially for most people so tiny living is a, a real draw and i think i think it, it it's quite fun like i liked that boat i considered right. i thought we could live on a boat quite easily still believe that so you have to be more efficient but the thought that you can get something for that kind of price and and well, keep just- in mind that a lot of like you don't even have to have the most seaworthy boat. It doesn't mean you're 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 uh, sailing to um, you know down to South America or Hawaii or something. You could just stay coastal or intercoastal and and have a pretty simple, somewhat non-functioning boat, but that, but it floats. Yeah, yeah. it gets so better. I'm assuming though. that's what you're. Okay, it, it gets better. So we started looking at boats, uh, or I started looking at boats, I should say. Um, and where we comes in, why I did the Freudian slip of we is that, um, I I have a friend online that I met and I don't know, we were just chatting and, and she was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I don't know, just going to live on a sailboat. So I got to figure it out. I've got till May to figure it out when I want to leave the farm and you know, whatever that the conversation went away. And then a few days later, um, she reached out to me and she goes like, I want to talk to you. Um, and it is a fascinating story because she 
had not found her dad. So she, her dad left when she was born and she's been looking for her dad ever since. She's almost my age. And she found her dad in 2018, I want to say, but she found her dad through, um, he, he had passed away six months prior. And Oh, that's a shame. At, yeah. And at the time, um, she, because it was only six months after he passed away, um, she became someone involved, I want to say, with the will, not voluntarily. She had no, she had no desire to be involved with the will. But I think because of the timing of it, the coincidence of it all, you know, that it just happened that she got sort of sucked into that vortex. And one of the things in the will was a boat. Um, Ultimately, she wasn't involved in the in the estate in any way, and the boat got sold at auction for I don't know what it was like. It was floating in a marina in Point Roberts, Washington, and which is immediately okay. south of Vancouver, um, and uh, it got sold for nothing. And you know, she thought, oh, I could probably maybe I could live on a sailboat at the time. This is back in 2018 or 2019, and then it just went away. She decided which i think is is brave of her she decided to become a full-time student she has a goal and a dream to to get her master's in counseling and and is a full-time student and so i think she was thinking well i could just do my schooling from the boat but anyways it just went away then when we started talking she reached out to the person that had bought the boat from the estate and said hey do you happen to still have my dad's oh did i mention it was her dad's boat yeah, I don't think yep. I mentioned that. I think I skipped over it, maybe. But anyways, um, <laughs> so her dad had this boat and this passion for sailing that she had never met. She reached out to the guy that bought the boat from the estate, and he's like, yeah, I still got it. Do you want to buy it? And then she reached back out to me and said, do you want to buy this boat? Because it's my dad's boat. I'd be really interested in in seeing it, at least anyways. Uh, let's go take a drive. So we drove down to Washington together and, um, and you know, as friends, we just drove down, had a look at the boat, kind of fell in love with the boat um, and ended up buying it. But uh, I don't know. I don't know how much to divulge. I mean, <laughs> we, we bought it together is the deal. So we went half okay. on this boat. We got down there and the boat was a disaster. Um, it, it had been sitting for years. It was covered in lichen and moss. It was just disgusting, Sean. And I think mm. at the time he had said, well, I'd take 5000 for it. And so wow. we got down there. It was filled with trash and garbage. The bills was overflowing. There were tools everywhere. Like I said, I'll, I'll send you videos of when we found it. And it's just awful. Mm -hmm. We were so heartbroken when we saw it because the only pictures we had seen of it were when it was more or less pristine and we thought oh five thousand mm -hmm. for this boat like what a deal yeah right <laughs> so we got right it's a 27 foot mm -hmm. uh live aboard boat like full you know full head galley everything the, the works right we get into this boat we start tearing it apart and it's got spare sails which are not cheap it's got all sorts of parts mm -hmm. it's got a wind generator that's brand new in the box it's got you know everything's mm -hmm. functioning on it more or less it's just dirty so before we even bought it, we paid a guy to clean it, you know, a local guy that lives in the marina. He came by with a pressure washer, spent the day pressure washing, and then we finished up the next day and cleaned it all up and and discovered that it's really quite nice underneath all the grossness. Um, mm -hmm. And so we made an offer on the boat for $1,500. And he said, yeah, oh sure. So, oh so we... Right? So we bought this boat for $1,500. Then it gets better. Wow. Do you know how much it costs to keep a boat at a marina? $300 mm -hmm. a month. That's yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So you have yeah. access at this marina to showers, this, washrooms. This is, this is where now, though. It, it, that's in. That's where it's Point currently Roberts, down Washington. in Washington. But almost okay, any marina so that, that I've phoned, anyways, they're all $300 a month for moorage fees. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's reasonable because accessibility is an issue here. So mm -hmm. they can charge whatever they want. And it's seasonal where I guess they were there. You're, yeah, you can keep them in the yeah. water. Um, so 300 bucks a month. I, in yeah, most yeah. of the marinas that you talk to, they say, well, power, if you want to plug into power, it's 55 mm -hmm. bucks a month, more or less. Um, mm -hmm. I 
I don't know that water is included in some places it would be in other places you probably have to mm. pay 10 or 20 bucks a month for water whatever it might be but you know sure. like the thing I love about sailboats is they're set up to be self-contained like especially if you throw solar mm-hmm. panels on it I watched your latest video and I was intrigued by all of your so- solar discussions because it will apply to the boat directly um, mm-hmm. Boats run off batteries. So you have a battery bank already in the boat right now. Um, Now you have to add a way to charge it, which typically it will run off the motor. So we have a little 13 horsepower Yanmar diesel for getting in and out of the marina or or if you want to power boat, you know, through a lull in wind or whatever, right? So whenever you want to charge the batteries, you can just start the motor. But the easier thing to do is like install that wind generator and or those solar panels. So you got power taken care of. You know, mm-hmm. water you, is a problem, um, but there's plenty of places to achieve fresh water, even if it's just wild fresh water. Um, and, you know, there's springs and falls and natural fresh water sources all up and down the coast. So uh, I'm anticipating just literally so the- pulling in somewhere and filling up mm-hmm. jerry cans with water sure. to fill up the tanks for fresh water, right? But And then, of so course, your battle size- with Giardia, so that comes into... <laughs> yeah filtering water and then treating it again is um, a good idea so what size holding tank would that have or yeah freshwater holding uh-huh. tank and then black and gray waters assuming it's all it's all on board of course yeah it's all on board i don't know those details offhand sean yeah no we have to figure all of that out um but you know so, so this is, what, is yeah that's what says again no, it's just very interesting about small living is that you pay very close attention to that. So for the audience, so a freshwater tank is going to be the water that you hold on board for for things like cleaning and cooking. And then you drinking. have your black water, which is your, uh, yeah, drinking. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I should just mention that first. And then you've got your black water, which is your your uh, waste elimination. And then you have your gray water tank, which typically... Typically, you would keep those separate. Sometimes they're combined. And that gray water is less of a pollutant, which would include like your shower water and your dishwater, for example. Um, so when you're doing that, now you've got, okay, I've got this limited supply of fresh water in my tank. So I have to be very diligent with that. And then also that is filling up the gray and black water tanks, which have to be emptied somewhere properly, safely, and, you know, eco-friendly and all that so you're paying very close attention to your inputs and then your outputs which is whether it's a tiny house whether it's a log cabin whether it's a boat whether it's an rv these are the things you have to pay more attention to which makes you a more a better steward of your environment that you've chosen to live in yeah 100 percent um uh, so you know the the cooking fuel is another thing um so we're actually looking at buying mm-hmm. a uh, a wood stove which sounds like a, yeah, a viking pyre mm-hmm. ready to happen but anyways they sell these little <laughs> these little wood stoves it's called the cubic mini i think it's called um and they're specifically made for rvs and uh you know van life and sailboats and on this so as an addition to the wood stove you can attach a little hot water tank on the side uh it's got a cooking platform on the top to which an oven actually attaches as well so you know uh, mm-hmm. there's there's uh driftwood and and firewood available on every beach everywhere sure. along the coast so i'm not mm-hmm. worried about that too much uh pro the stove road runs off propane well the stove in the galley actually runs off uh alcohol and then we have a little barbecue like off the back mm. deck off the cockpit deck that uh, runs on propane wow. so and then the plan is really so you know so there's a little bit of a i don't know there's a little bit of a romance that's is developing there um with this friend and i and um whatever you'll have to stay you'll have to watch the channel to see how that develops <laughs> i don't know but anyways right. the plan is to uh Interesting. yeah the plan is to uh um just be as self-sustainable as possible you know like on the coast especially i've i have yet to be on a spot on the ocean where you couldn't drop a hook to the bottom and catch a fish of some sort so wow. there's that there is the, you know, of course, within legal, right? You have to be, you have to watch the legalities of all that. But of course, then there's crabs. Again, 
the time I've spent on the coast in places where you're allowed to do it and you drop a crab trap to the bottom, a crab pot or a prawn pot, then you've got food. So I've never been skunked doing that. Um, I'm sure it's possible. And then the other thing is like just hunting and foraging, uh, especially in BC, the blacktail deer there and the black bear are well, black bear aren't available but uh, year-round, but gosh, blacktails, I think they're seasoned. Blaine Prouse, a friend of mine, lives on Haida Gwaii, and he was telling me, like, I think the season starts in July and then runs through till <laughs> February or something like that. Like, you wow. just hunt them, like, almost year-round, and you can, you can harvest a lot of them. So, you know, wow. there's all these. So the food is easy. The water is easy easy i guess um mm-hmm. there's rainwater collection as well um the sailing will be hard but learnable that'll be something i'll have to tackle is you know the ability to get around um and explore all of these sure. places to hunt and fish cooking will be on the beach primarily i would well, maybe not primarily okay. but you know like the idea is to spend time on land you know like the zodiac will be attached to the back of the boat will bomb to shore and campfire cook and uh you know process food that way we have plans to do a lot of canning or well, not a lot but you know as much as we can on a, on such a small spot and then the the main thing is just eating fresh like okay you want you want greens mm-hmm. well there's there's a never-ending smorgasbord of greens available on the coast right both aquatic and sure. land terrestrial and then there's the wild mm-hmm. proteins all over the place fish and crab and, and and mussels and shellfish and you know whatever you want so there's a learning curve with all of that as well right but i don't know it just seems like heaven on earth to me <clears throat> yeah it sounds like it now is the plan right now to stay in washington then we're you know i can only stay in washington for five months and 29 days legally so Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so the plan is that yes that will be our home base it's a wonderful little place it is a weird peninsula of land on canadian soil that belongs to the u.s and and so the only way to get to it is through a secure border uh or by boat um, and there's no ferry service that runs to mainland Washington. So it's really quiet. It's mainly used as a summer vacation spot for Canadians. Uh, the marina is large um, and filled with infrastructure of all kinds. There's grocery stores and all sorts of stuff. So I think the plan is to spend the winters wow. there where it's affordable and you're plugged in. Of course, we'll do some sailing on nice days. but uh, And then for the other six months and a day, we'll just spend in Canadian waters uh, up and down the coast um, um, and just see what kind of trouble we can get into there. We've got all sorts of friends. Chef Jade Berg lives in Campbell River. My family is spattered all up and down the coast and on the island. Uh, Blaine Prouse is in Haida Gwaii. Um, Skagway, Alaska is only an hour and a half from Whitehorse, where Alex lives, my friend, um, you know, and from there, who knows, um, you know, it's, I can sure see me yeah. wanting to lift anchor in November and sail south and hit all the surfing <laughs> villages, you know, Busrias and uh, Sayulita north of Puerto Vallarta, right? I can sure see that being a thing and, uh, uh, you know, hmm. seeing what kind of wild food mysteries we can unravel there as well. So, yeah. Who knows? No, if, I, if I wasn't doing something interesting and compelling enough for myself, I'd be very envious because that sounds next to ideal and the cost of living substantially lower than the average cost of living. And I don't know if people realize this. To how they don't. potentially cheaply you can live. Like people caught up in this rat race and i'm not talking about like executives downtown who are stressed out because they're dealing with you know pollution and high population and and meaningless job and so on and from any level that 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 is so affordable that there's very few people who couldn't do that all it takes and this is a life lesson for anybody at any stage of life you put some work in put some effort in put do some critical thinking and some research and you can choose that your life path we live in times that these are unprecedented and we 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 tend to focus on the negatives of what's going on politically or environmentally or 
Um, <laughs> all the other thing, bad things you're hearing in the news. But if you focus on just creating the life of your dreams, it, it's so attainable. You just have to put the effort in and don't back off. Just every day. And this is obviously your, your, this is your mindset because, like I said, we just started talking about this a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And you put it in motion. It's, there's not a day that you shouldn't be excited to get up. And you can't sleep in the morning because you, you can't wait to take that next step towards that dream life. Dude, I'm up at 4.30 most mornings because I just can't stand it. Like, you know, I'm editing videos. Exactly I'm, yeah, right? I'm so excited about yeah. starting this new business, the YouTube channel. I'm so excited about the boat. I'm excited about a new relationship. I'm excited about uh, downsizing all of my stuff, which some of it is problematic because I'm attached to it and, and it's perceived as being necessary. But I don't need three bows and I don't need you know deer heads i guess so things like that will have to go expert clothing so all of that sort of stuff is exciting right it's challenging learning how to sail learning how to fix a sailboat um luckily with all of my experience on the farm you know i weld and i do woodwork i've always been sort of an artist when it comes to uh crafting things bush crafting things um you know so now i have to bush craft like hatchway doors and and countertops and cutting boards and you know what i mean like all the stuff that a boat might need you know the the farming experience will help me with that diesel that little diesel motor making sure that it's running properly and the electrical system like i know how to do all of that um those are life skills that you know with the time you're learning them you're learning them for a particular Mm. project and you go well this is all i'll ever use it for it's like nope you'll use it for the rest of your life learning how to cook like learning Mm -hmm. how to cook over a campfire um Mm -hmm. that's a skill that is probably paid me back more than any other skill that i can think of because Mm -hmm. i don't you know i don't eat at restaurants i guess i would like to because i've got friends that own restaurants but i just don't I can't afford it. I don't want to afford it. And, you know, frankly, I can make food that's pretty good myself, right? So, you know, there's mm-hmm. a skill that a lot of people can learn, whether they're living in a condo or on a sailboat somewhere. Yeah. Also, preserving and storing of that food sounds like yeah. you've become an expert at that or somewhat. And that's going to be extremely important on a boat. Like, you could, sure, you can hunt blacktails uh, year round, but you're not consuming a blacktail, but you know, fresh. Uh, you're talking about 100 pounds of meat or 60 pounds of meat and that has to be preserved in some manner especially on a in a small space where you can store that efficiently and eat that over time so that's the thing about skills like your entire life again every day you should try to learn something and you don't know when that's going to be valuable what point in your life life you're going to lean on that skill right no kidding right i don't know you probably you've probably uh, or realized the same things right stuff that you learned in a previous life come back to haunt you and you just go thank goodness i experienced that hardship or i don't know Mm -hmm. i've had a real mindset shift you know you talked about mental health i was in a bad place maybe even just a year ago mentally um and I've had a, a few different mind shifts lately. And one of them is realizing that all the crap that you go through um, is a good thing. The failures that you've experienced are good things for a few different reasons. Number one is, you, what did you learn? Um, and number two is, for every bad day, you're one day closer to a good day. And so if you can mm-hmm. maintain that, that it's not going to be bad forever. Well... You know what I mean? I guess I'm speaking from a place of privilege, and I get that. But um, well, that that's yeah, not necessarily. I mean, there's that's a good and bad's a matter of perspective. There's different scales of that, and sure, there is good days. Like if you're going through your hardest times, think about the things that you were good that day. And there's there's always going to be something. Mm-hmm. You ate a meal. That's not always a that's that's a privilege in some places. Like everything. Every day has some blessings that you need to, well, you to focus on. on. Yeah, sorry, sure. And that mental and well, the, no, uh, mental and physical health. I mean, there's so many factors involved in, in cleaning up your diet. You know, staying away from those har- harmful substances mm-hmm. in quantity, at least, and uh, pr- uh, pursuing something meaningful. And for a young person, the fan, like you, neither you, you nor I would ever regret 
regret having a family despite that it sidetracked us from the personal passions that we wanted to pursue that itself was so meaningful that i'd still Mm -hmm. encourage everyone to do that Um, and we are at this age and who would have thought i'm sure when you were younger you didn't think well i'm gonna finally do that thing i really love to do and that's so fulfilling at 50 something years old or at 50 years old like you think that's an old man that's not (laughs) doesn't have much life left in them i don't i'm glad that i did whatever i did and worked as hard as i did back then and if if um just to end up in this place mm-hmm. this place where now i'm doing it and i'm not too old to enjoy it i might have another 30 or f- who knows in 40 years but let's say 30 years that's a lot of life left and i've already raised a family i've already had that uh, you know good career i've already had some major failures that i learned lessons from but you have to do it all don't let a day go by where you're not learning something or pursuing something or failing at something because you took well, a exactly. risk. Exactly, and I just think that the other lesson I guess I've learned is you called it a midlife crisis, and you're not the first person that I've heard say that. I've said it in my own mind, right? But hmm. it's not a crisis at all. It's a midlife awakening or a midlife opportunity, yes. or you know, it's it's something that uh, is a has a positive connotation to it. Because, like I said, I'm just so excited. I, I, it, I it feels like. I said this the other day, it feels like I'm eight years old and tomorrow is Christmas day. And, Mm. you know, and I wake up every day with that feeling and gosh, it feels so good. I hope that never goes away. Um, And I don't think it will because, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to the boat. I'm looking forward to the next video I put out on the YouTube channel. I'm looking forward to uh, learning how to sail. I'm looking forward to renovating the boat or fix, you know what I mean? Just like every day, there's going to be something that I can look forward to. And I hope that never ends. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm excited to watch that journey. And, um, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, uh, John's going to, in the show notes, I guess, this is new to me, this podcasting, so there's show notes, apparently, i got to figure out how to do that, and I'm going to provide links to uh, to John's um, social media platforms, but uh, I'm excited, I'm seriously excited to watch his journey, so I encourage you to as well. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Hey, I'm going to tempt you with something else, too, because when we were down at the boat, there's a <laughs> about there's about five boats down from ours is a uh, 30 foot uh boat that is immaculate and guess how much he wants for it 15 grand and when i talked to him yeah 15 grand and when i talked to him i said what's the minimum like come on help me out and he said okay 12 so twelve thousand dollars you can have a 30 foot live aboard that is just move in ready like and it's immaculate. Like that's, ours is a is that's a, crazy. a junk heap compared to this one. So yeah. And you're so. not experienced, and this is again for if you're young looking at alternatives, you don't know. If you're just not ready to make a decision, what you want to do with your life? I mean, jump into that. I mean, you could find some kind of financing, somebody, family member to help you out, some way of work your ass off at a part-time job after your full-time job to come up with that money. It is absolutely doable, and the only thing stopping it, it would be your own mindset. Like that, that's yeah. amazing. I didn't, absolutely. I didn't know that existed. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Or, or be, you know, build community. Like, go, t- you know, talk to mm-hmm. the guy that owns the boat and become his friend somehow by doing being a nice person or doing something nice or make a deal and go hey look i can't afford this but can i make payments or can i and you know maybe the answer is Mm -hmm. no but you don't know unless you ask um Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people out there especially older people that own a boat uh that are getting out of it for whatever reason you know they don't need the 12 grand like that to them mm-hmm, is nothing true. um so maybe they feel like helping you out i know i would um so yeah mm-hmm. anyways there's more than one way to well. accomplish anything yeah yeah well john i think we should wrap this up it's been over an hour um we are definitely going to do this again though soon and i'm i'll be following along on your new youtube channel and and uh, cool. I, i'm excited for you Thanks, bud. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. All right. My pleasure. 